Welcome back, everybody, to the Talking Sports Media podcast. And coming up this week, we've got two new podcasts for you. Later on this week, on Friday, we've got an extra show. We're going to be talking to Anthony Potts about his book, Losing My Spurs, Gaza, the Grief and the Glory, Memories of a Failed Footballer. Some title that, isn't it? But it's Anthony's story of life as a prodigiously talented youth footballer, which he was. His goals total was something unbelievable. Uh, He joined Spurs in the late 80s in that famed academy that they had in the time, which produced the likes of Nicky Barmby and Sol Campbell, to name just a few. And he graduated into the squad, which had, of course, Paul Gascoigne and Gary Lineker. Now, everything was set for life as a Premier League football star until injury hit. So we'll look at Anthony's story later on in the week. Now, first, on April the 8th and running until August 22nd, the Design Museum in London is hosting an exhibition titled Football Exploring the Beautiful Game. Now, there are more than 500 objects plus film and interviews as it looks at everything from kit design, crest design, stadiums, ultras, choreography, performance and evolution of tactics. In fact, just about anything you could think of, really. Now, Eddie Watson has spent the last two years pushing this together. She's curated it in association with the National Football Museum, and she joins me to chat about what you can expect to see. Now, bookwise in this show, John Sperling joins us later to talk about his book. It's called Get It On, which tells the story of football in the 1970s, a decade for some who remember it as being the greatest ever football decade. For others, though, it was one to forget, a decade dominated by hooliganism, poor stadiums and a national team that was in stark decline. That's coming up, though. First, the Design Museum curator, Annie Watson, joined me to talk about the upcoming exhibition, Football Designing the Beautiful Game. This exhibition, which has been two years in the making, which which appears to be a significant time, has been called the ultimate football fans day out. And it's, I see it's split into sections. So you've got performance identity, crowd, uh, spectacle and play. So just, just tell us a bit about what we could expect to see when we come to visit the exhibition. Well, a lot of objects. Uh, we have uh, over 500 exhibits in the exhibition. Um, so there's there's a lot to see. You definitely have a coffee before coming in. Um, and I guess it's, it's a broad sweep of an exhibition, uh, looking at all of the very many different ways that architects and designers have shaped football since the early days of professionalisation through to the present. And as you mentioned, it's it's divided into these five sections and each of those looks at a specific need within football and how designers and architects respond to that need. So performance uh, is looking at the the very basics. What do you need to play the game? Well, you need a ball and preferably also a pair of boots. Um, And then that sort of explodes outwards to look at all of the other kinds of technical equipment that the game requires. uh, And it's sort of a way of charting its... um, increased professionalization over the past 150 years. I was going to say history of kits, crests, Mm. evolution of formations, uh, choreographies of uh, Italian ultras. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a football fan working on this, putting this exhibition together, I mean, this this would have been utter heaven. (laughs) 
you know, absolute <laughs> heaven. Um, but you, you wouldn't describe yourself as an out-and-out football fan. No, absolutely not. I uh, came to it completely fresh. Um, so the the reason why I, I pitched the exhibition in the first place was actually because a friend of mine uh, works uh, for a very nice football magazine. Uh, and I always saw these magazines lying around his house uh, called Mundial. Um, and uh, I always saw these issues of Mundial lying around his flat and thought, oh, actually, there's something in there from a design perspective. Uh, so then kind of jumped, jumped into it, uh, not with no no prior knowledge yeah it's been really exciting i think in lots of ways it's been quite daunting i had a few uh, calls early on in the project with um some very helpful designers who happen to know a lot about football and i said you know this is just a it's an ocean of information there is so much content that you could look at and there are so many different perspectives and um how can this all be sort of synthesized into one exhibition without upsetting a lot of people um and they basically all told me just go into it knowing that some people are not going to like what you're showing and there's not going to be everyone has a very very personal um opinion and perspective on football and you can't be all things to all people and i guess the point is to to get people thinking about yeah evolution of formations Mm. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, well, actually, you know, if you're looking at design of uh, team structure, I suppose, I mean, it, it does fit because back in the in the early days, they would be playing formations that were literally the exact opposite of today. So there would be, you know, one or two defenders mm-hmm. and five forwards, <laughs> as opposed to today where it's the other way around, two, three and five defenders and two and one forward. Yeah, absolutely. And there's... You know, actually, even been quite a few articles written uh, about what football and these, you know, formation designs can teach us about um, machine learning and computer programming because it's this combination of like planning and spontaneity um, that sort of plays out across lots of other forms. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been very interesting. Football clubs mm. are now brands. I mean, fans mm. might not like to to admit this, but but football clubs are brands, and the the links with fashion and fashion design have become deeper, and the links have become closer over time. We've seen uh, lots of uh, collaborations with major brands. Real Madrid did one with um, Yoji Yamamoto designer kit. Napoli with uh, with Giorgio Armani. So there's a heavy design influence on kit and merchandise yeah absolutely and we definitely do touch on that in the exhibition first of all by looking at the design of the crest and you know this is the highly contested site and i guess this moment where all of uh, people's frustrations with how their clubs are managed and just the overall commercialization of, of football um, sort of plays out in these debates around the design of the crest because any any changes to a crest are, you know, incredibly contested. Um, and I guess there is that tension between uh, what the club means to its local communities, which are, you know, a tiny percentage of its overall reach, realistically, uh, and what the club's ambitions are as a, a global brand. Do you, do you think that as... Uh, football clubs widen uh, their their brand and what is in within the brand. Are you from from merchandise, 
to NFTs, to, to everything, because with, you actually have people that align themselves to the club that are almost a supporter of a club without actually bothering about the football. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think there's um, there's a lot of interesting things going on, even just within the you know the very obvious world of esports, where there will be people who follow a certain team because they play that team on FIFA. They don't necessarily watch the games. Um, so yeah, it's become an incredibly diversified business, um, which yeah, it's it's quite a thorny subject to untangle because obviously there's so many you know as the industry of football grows bigger and bigger and sort of has its uh, reach widen, obviously the possibility for problematic aspects to the game multiply. Um, so yeah, it's, it's stadiums mm. now. I mean, th this would have been an obvious uh, feature or section as a part of an exhibition. New stadiums and design spark de debate for some. If you look at, say, the loss of Highbury, mm. the Archibald Leach design Highbury, which was a magnificent piece of Art Deco, and see it replaced with the Emirates, which <laughs> is a bowl. But you've actually mentioned, you know, the fact that okay, you get a few more facilities. But in rea uh, reality, the experience hasn't changed since the ancient Greeks. That's it, really. I mean, when you go back and actually look at the original Olympic Stadium, it's the amphitheatre. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they sort of, they they cracked it <laughs> first thing. So, you know, it's about affording people sight lines, ultimately. Um, and there was already a formula for doing that, you know, a very, very long time ago. So I guess it's just about... Um, you know, it plays out in lots of different ways because actually, you know, interestingly, that's we had that information from a very long time ago, but that's not what early football stadiums looked like. They were these incredibly ramshackle, um, you know, informal spaces where you would have the pitch and gradually people started adding temporary seating around the pitch that sort of mushroomed. Uh, and that's why you get so many of these stadiums, particularly across the UK, that feel like a collage of a building they're, they're a little bit ad hoc and it's sort of you add one feature and then you think actually no we want even more of this or less of that um so they've they've grown in this very um organic way i guess uh, and i think maybe that's why it feels some there's something a little bit soulless maybe about when a, a very old stadium that has been transformed over time and built up over time is demolished to have a, an all-purpose, um, you know, very sleek uh, design erected in its place. Designers more focused now on designing stadiums which fit areas and regions, and we've seen this link to history and culture. We we tend to see it as well, don't we? In major competitions, we are certainly going to see it in Qatar in the World Cup. You know, stadiums, you know, built on along the lines of uh, a Bedouin tent, fishing boats, woven <laughs> caps uh, as inspiration. But, but fitting the the area's history and culture is now seen as being very important. Yeah, I think uh, within football, but within, you know, our broader society, generally at the moment, there's this sort of... Uh, desperate search for authenticity and uh, rooting something in, in a sense of places is a very obvious way of doing that. So I think it's, um, 
not to be too pessimistic about it, but I think this um, emphasis on, on the local geography and looking at you know symbolism from the landscape and you know playing that out across the the design is um, a way of signaling um, that this is something authentic and therefore that people should like it. How did you go about putting together the feature on choreographies of ultras and Italian ultras in particular? Um, that was a lot of fun, actually. Um, I spoke to uh, Martino Simsek at Copper 90, who uh, has sort of dedicated his entire career to ultras and uh, Italian ultras specifically. So we had some very nice conversations. And he told me to just go and watch a lot of YouTube videos. Um, so it was it was basically doing that um, and then looking at the more the earlier material. So there was this wonderful magazine called Super Tifo yes. um, yeah, yeah. in the early 90s. So sort of pouring through those magazines to get an idea of, you know, what it was that these people were trying to achieve. And uh, I think there's this there's been this huge fetishization of um, football hooliganism in this country. And I think this idea of like the dedicated football fan in the UK at least brings to mind this, you know, violent interactions. And it was really interesting to look at Super Tifo and see that the primary purpose there is not about, you know, beating people up. It's It's this huge degree of care and patience that goes into making enormous, enormous choreographies that, you know, are practiced. For months sometimes. 500 plus objects in here with films uh, and, and interviews mm. as well. What, what gave you the most pleasure putting this together? Which was your, you know, mm. your day where you got up and thought, actually, I really want to go in today. I mean, for me, it would have been every day. But <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's really, really hard to say. I think uh, an obvious one would be going to visit the collection stores at the National Football Museum in Preston. So obviously they have a lot of amazing objects on display uh, in Manchester, but they, you know, they have around 30,000 objects in their collection. So getting to spend days on end there, uh, sifting through boxes uh, was pretty incredible. Um, finding a lot of um, just objects that you, I found surprising. So things like um, fan scrapbooks from the 1950s. And there's this one particular example that we're showing in the exhibition that's from a, a Preston North End supporter who's just made this like love poem to Tom Finney as a, a, a scrapbook. And it's enormous. And there were all of these like really elaborate collages in there. Um, and yeah, it's just, there's a lot of, it's very fun and there's a, a lot of heart in it. And similarly, there's things like um, this really wonderful little um, child's mascot shirt from Sheffield Wednesday, uh, also from the 1950s. And the child who wore the shirt obviously got all of the players to sign it for him. And his mum or aunt or somebody has then gone and very carefully, very beautifully embroidered all of the signatures into the shirt. Um, and it's a really beautiful object and again just shows this you know degree of care that goes into all of these things so tell me after spending two years working on this project and the exhibition which opens very soon has your love of the game grown to a point where you've actually attached yourself to a club 
<laughs> I'm ashamed to say, Tim, that it hasn't. I um, I remain a fascinated outsider. Um, I have gone to see a few games, which has been really interesting, but I no, I haven't uh, attached myself to a club yet, which I do think is, is still a good thing because um, it's meant that I've stayed uh, very impartial and, and hopefully that comes across in the exhibition and the sort of breadth of content that we're showing. That was Ellie Watson, curator of the Design Museum in London, who's curated the exhibition Football Designing the Beautiful Game, which opens on April the 6th. Now, moving on, John Sperling has uh, tried to encapsulate the spirit and feeling of football in the 1970s in his book, Get It On. He joined me to talk about the book and a decade which gave us fine music, Think Led Zeppelin in their prime. On television, you could have watched the lightly dance Faulty Towers, or if you were highbrow, World in Action, or Panorama. And if you had a worldly palette, of course, you could always watch all of that whilst enjoying a Vesta curry, which one reviewer quoted, made your kitchen smell like a Calcutta cesspit. And you could wash it all down, of course, with a cold 45. No taste better than malt liquor. Anyway, he joined me. And we talked and talked and talked about football, life, personalities of the 1970s. Football in the, the 70s, this uh, kaleidoscope of uh, drama, innovation, controversy, tragedy, melodrama, slapstick. Yeah. Uh, is the backdrop to the life in the 1970s, you know, the politics as well. We had the winter of discontent. We had the music. We began the decade with, well, the likes of Led Zeppelin and Sabbath and Purpling rumbling through to glam, prog, punk and um, the new wave of British heavy metal. But this, this book starts with um, pure comedy, I thought and the shenanigans at the FA Cup final. I never knew this. I don't know where this came from, considering I've worked in the industry for a good few years <laughs> and you've it's heard right. most things. I never heard of the subterfuge that was used oh. by ITV to try and usurp the BBC's exclusivity of that final Cup final of the uh, 60s. I know. I mean, this, this, this came partly from Jimmy Hill, but it actually came from Barry Davis because Barry Davis wrote the foreword for my for this book, and he worked for the for ITV at the time uh, in the late sixties before he made his name really at BBC. So yeah, so the um, nineteen sixty nine FA Cup finals between uh, Leicester City and Manchester City. Manchester City won one nil, and Neil Young scored the uh, scored the winner, but. Um, the BBC regarded ITV as upstarts, um, and ITV came up with this came up with a, a ridiculous, ridiculous, um, uh, as you say, subterfuge where they'd they they'd signed up Malcolm Allison as a as a as a kind of pundit, as a commentator on um, on on the big match, which was which was broadcast in in London only at, at that time, and they they before the game they smuggled in. A load of sky blue Manchester City tracksuits, um, and the BBC um, claimed that they had a contract to to interview um, the, the the players, an exclusive contract after the game. ITV kind of checked out the small print, and as it turned out, 
the contract um, only gave them exclusive rights before um, before the match, but not after. Afterwards, it was it was fair game. Although BBC, being the more senior kind of um, partner, um, thought that they should have have rights. Uh, and it, it, they be exclusive, so, and it ended up in a in a in a fight in a free for all with that's the, right. <laughs> behind that's, the cameras. That's right. So as as they as all as they made a a beeline for for Neil Young, um, that you know the, the BBC um, team, um, they realised that ITV uh, um, the ITV crew in their um, sky blue tracksuits they've been sitting on the on the Manchester City bench all game and then suddenly they moved were moving in and yeah punches were thrown uh, one of the BBC guys had a, had a tooth knocked out there were tables leads pulled out it was an absolute free-for-all and Barry Davis called it the the punch-up final he said Neil Young just stood there with his mouth open thinking what is you know what's going on here that the, the, the fisticuffs afterwards were were were, were remarkable and both sides were kind of both ITV and, and BBC were were criticized heavily by the FA but but what interestingly Jimmy Hill said to me we realized at that point that we um had got under their skin and all it meant was that um Jimmy Hill, who was who was working for ITV at, at that time, he was LWT's controller of sport, and Br- John Bromley, the ITV controller of sport, started to think about other ways they could get under their their rivals' noses, and they came up with the idea of the panel at the nineteen seventy World Cup, which really did change the face of of, of football on television. I think. Oh, it, it it did because it moved away from the the rather grey BBC. Panel at the time you had uh, Don Revy, uh, Mercer, Bertie, me, and Bob Wilson—all very, very conservative and very establishment. ITV have Malcolm Allison, the Doog, Paddy Crerand, Bob McNabb. But one other thing in here, which is surprising, that you make um, a note of is the fact that in 1970, only 160,000 people in the entire country of it was probably about 48, 50 million then had colour television. That's right, that's right. I mean, the majority of the country, the vast majority, saw that World Cup in, in, in black and white. I mean, radio rentals, um, you know, they, they, they hired out a number of colour TVs because there had been an initial upsurge after the moon landings. But, but um, yeah, the vast majority saw it in black and white. And it's a shame because that World Cup now, when we look back on it in colour... Well, the greatest World Cup ever, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, that you've got the, the electric green turf... Um, you've got Brazil's golden shirts pouring off the off the screens at you. You've you mentioned England. another thing that was prevalent in the 1970s, which uh, people today don't have radio rentals. So for those of you that are listening to this and don't know what that is, it's a place where you used to go to pay two quid a week or whatever it was yeah. with your little book to rent a television. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and so you know the the the, the ITV um, the ITV studio had its had its set up just right in the sense that if you were watching it on TV, it was kind of like a, a pale orange, like a Mexican Mexican mm. sunset. And the panelists, the the chaps you mentioned, Alison 
uh, Dugan, uh, McNabb and Crerand all wore kind of different coloured T-shirts and they spoke to each other in a very non-BBC way. You Jimmy know, Hill, Brown, by the way, didn't he say that when he first saw himself in colour, he thought he was suffering from high blood pressure? Yeah, yeah, he said it was terribly <laughs> garish. But he said the, the temptation is when you see yourself in colour for the first time to turn the colour up to its max. So it looks like something like the Wizard of Oz, you know, in, in glorious, in glorious Technicolor. But, but I have to say, um, if you did yeah. do that um, and went back and watched on YouTube and compared the two, because you can see the panels from from both. You can see the BBC coverage yeah. and you can see some the ITV coverage was amazing. I mean, it really was. I mean, you know, Big Mal just sat there puffing on a Cuban. There was uh, there was talk, although you didn't see it, of lots of alcohol being consumed throughout the course of the day, which of course enhanced the the banter and all of those floral shirts and something else of the of the time, something which called a, a kipper tie. I mean, the panellists stayed at the iconic, I don't think it's with us anymore, the Hendon Hall Hotel. Yeah. Where England England mm. squads used to stay back in the day. Um, and, you know, Alison ran, ran up a, a, a bar bill of around £1,000. I mean, the guys only got paid £500 each for their, for their summer's work. But I think ITV paid it because... The the, uh, the 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 figures were, were amazing. I mean, BBC still got better um, ratings for the matches, but straight away punters would turn over to ITV to see what was ensuing. And as you say, Malcolm Allison blowing smoke in Derek Dugan's face when he didn't agree <laughs> with what he heard. Exactly. It's a legend, but yeah. he ended up getting piles and piles of uh, fan mail, didn't he? Malcolm Allison, uh, mostly from women. Uh, and then the, the three of them, the four of them getting mobbed in London when they're at in Oxford Street doing a bit of shopping. Um, That's right. I mean, That's right. it was uh, it was a great panel, but £500. I mean, that's probably the transport budget for picking up a commentator or not a commentator, sorry, picking up a, a panellist or a pundit from his house and ferrying him into the studio these days. £500. Yeah. Remarkable. It is. It is incredible. I mean, I think, um, you know, what's amazing is that four years before when Bobby Charlton, um, Roger Hunt and Nobby Styles, I think it was, headed back up north after they won the World Cup, they popped in for a coffee at a service station and they were they were like, no one. No one bothered them. Alf Ramsey used to get the tube into London. No one spoke to him. But these four guys just talking about football. Suddenly it was as if they were they were, you know, they were the Beatles. I mean, the odd thing is that on BBC, Brian Clough was actually on the the BBC panel for the 1970 World Cup and <laughs> the little footage that remains. You can see the others just do not know what to do with Clough. As every time he speaks, they are on edge because <laughs> Clough was very un-BBC. He just described Felix, the Brazil um, goalkeeper, as a, as a disaster. And the others are, this, is, this isn't BBC talk. So he was always suited for, for ITV. Um, and obviously by 1974 World Cup, he's, he's, he's moved over. That's Mind that's you, great. Alison did uh, court controversy when he called the Romanians peasants, didn't he? That's right. I think the switchboard was jammed with complaints, which I, th I believe was uh, the whole point of having Malcolm Allison on. I mean, Allison was, uh, as you say, Brian Moore, who was kind of uh, the commentator, but he was left to, he was like a supply teacher in charge. Actually, no, that, that, that does him a disservice, like a headmaster in charge of this lot. 
he said that you know you could it was classic 70s um early 70s man scent in other words you've got the the exotic aftershaves probably probably uh something from old spice i would imagine old spice or brute <laughs> you've got the cigars you've got the waft of spirits off 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 big mal and the others and this kind of you know classic classic 70s alpha males all all brought together but as the decade moves on you can see the players seeing this opportunity to to make money in the mid seventies, we had the the clan, as it was yeah. known. Um, we had uh, Ball, we had uh, Man, uh, Mancini, Venables, uh, Hearst, Webb, Hudson, uh, oh, Rodney Marsh, of course, uh, getting together with a photographer. You couldn't make it up, could you? A photographer called Terry Neal, <laughs> who'd done a lot of the swinging sixties, didn't he? Yeah. The Carnaby Street thing with Gene Shrimpton and, and Twiggy, yeah. Um, yeah. but. They, it proved to be just a little bit before its time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like so many Terry O'Neill um, portraits, as he reminded me, they're not uh, not photographs. He said paparazzi take photographs. I take portraits. Fair enough. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, th there was it was it was originally Terry O'Neill said Malcolm Allison's idea that um, a group of elite footballers should get together and make a killing from the business side of, of the game. Because we're talking now sort of, you know, 10 years or more after the ending of the of the maximum wage in football. So top footballers are earning good money. I mean, a good example would be, say, Peter Osgood at Chelsea, who was earning the equivalent of what was now, what would be now £75,000 a year. Um, you know, good money by most people's standards, but not outstanding in, in terms of you know, obviously the, the way it is now. Um, but but Peter Osgood wasn't wasn't involved with the clan. So Malcolm Allison believed in that, that top footballers should be exploiting commercial opportunities. But unfortunately, like a lot of Allison's ideas, there was no real business plan under underpinning the whole thing. I mean, the photo is amazing. It's taken in a, in a, in a Terraza Est restaurant off Fleet Street. And you know that it looks like something out of the godfather with the cigars and and the exactly, champagne exactly yeah but no one seemed to really know where it was all leading and you know alan ball and alan hudson who i've interviewed interviewed for the book said they they never made a, a, a penny a penny out of it i think what it what it represents is the fact that footballers now are certainly higher profile um even though commercially they they were nowhere near um, perhaps you know that obviously the the level they are now. The one footballer who did make commercial killings in in the seventies was was Kevin Keegan mm. from you know Liverpool and and then after that um, Hamburg, who actually wanted to make serious money from the game. But um, you know, but the papers and the yeah. the media, of course, which was a completely different landscape and environment back then. I mean, the uh, the circulations were were millions. Yeah, and the Red Tops were giving football a whole lot more coverage. Charlie George uh, was a style icon of the of the time. Remember, it, I mean, this was glam rock time. This was Slade Sweet, uh, the Rubettes, Wizard, and all of that. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Gorgeous, 
was a headline which I picked out of the book. And Mark Bolan wanted hair like George Best. So, so you, you could see the way in which it was moving. And as that decade moved on, we started to see them, you know, football players draped over cars, etc., and yeah. and very much more coverage from the press. That's right. That's right. I mean, famously, Charlie George was invited to to cut a uh, a glam rock a, a glam rock record, um, and uh, as you say, his his his, his pseudonym was uh, Char the, the none too subtle Charlie Charlie Gorgeous. But the, the the recording didn't didn't go too well, and unfortunately, the 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 makeup um, girl who was dealing with Charlie was uh, forgot to bring the the cleanser. So when oh. um, Charlie um, stepped out of the studio. He was still in in his full war paint, and very famously, Charlie used to take the tube. You know, footballers did, even in the early seventies. Even high-profile ones used to take um, um, public transport. And on he stepped onto this uh, onto onto the tube. I don't know if he was actually recognised by anyone or just kept his, his buried his his head in a paper. Um, but yeah, it's the, the, you know the, the I think I think in terms of their public image. And the long hair and the increasing swagger. Footballers had a lot in common with the glam rock stars mm. of, of that era. There's there's clearly quite a bit of cross fertilization going on there. Oh and yeah, Terry there was a few Alvin Stardusts in there, weren't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were. Absolutely. O'Neill, Terry O'Neill's big coup was Raquel Welsh posing in a Chelsea kit on location at a film shoot, and then the the famous moment when she turns up at Stamford Bridge, Osgood is there, and it's pure theatre. That's right. That's right. I mean, she was escorted everywhere by by Jimmy Hill, who who wasn't um, wasn't too upset to be escorting uh, a, a Hollywood A list actress uh, actress around, and yeah, she took a particular shine to to Peter Osgood. Um, and during, a, I think it was a game against Leicester at Stamford Bridge, she was actually standing on the on the touchline shouting, you know, cooey, Aussie, uh, look over here kind of thing. <laughs> he was doing his best to concentrate on the on the game. But, you know, Chelsea in the early 70s attracted a real Hollywood set. I mean, Peter Osgood's um, kind of hero was uh, was one Morris Micklewhite, also known as, yeah, as Michael Caine. So Osgood said that, you know, he loved the film Get Carter, you know, his gangster flick shot in the early 70s. Um, and Mike, he, Michael Caine made a big impression on him because Michael Caine had come from an East End, you know, an East End background, um, like many footballers did, and had made it big, you know, in the world. And he said, you know, we're here now and, and, and we're not going away. There's a real kind of working class revolution in the late 60s, early 70s, of which top footballers like, like Osgood were, were part of it. But, you know, Steve McQueen went to watch Chelsea. Uh, there was Michael Crawford. Um, there were there were all sorts of, uh, of uh, music stars went as well. So yeah, the, the the Chelsea the Chelsea dressing room was often often full of of, of Hollywood uh, a listers at the time. Uh, doubtful over that decade, the entire decade as a whole, there was a bigger name than George Best. And these days, anybody and everybody purports to be uh, an influencer. But yeah. he began that decade as is again noted in the book, in that rather quaint Daily Express five-a-side football at Wembley, which we used to see, it ran through the 70s, it used to be on sports night with Coleman, didn't it? You'd see some of the, some of the highlights. That was the last thing that he actually won. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, they won that in 1970 at Wembley Arena, just two years after they'd won the European Cup at Wembley Stadium, which kind of shows their, their limited horizons by the early 70s. I mean, United are by now, by, the, by 1970, going into freefall, as was, as was George Best. And I was, I was lucky enough to, to interview um, George back in, in 2004, a year after his liver transplant. So he was actually on, on quite good form. He lost a lot of the weight around his face. He looked like the kind of handsome athlete who blazed a trail across the 60s. Um, and he, you know, he was still a star attraction. But as he said to me, he his his love for the game had, had gone, partly because Manchester United weren't the, the team they were. They were ageing, you know, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law weren't the players that they were. But also he was getting fed up with the with the fame. You know, he was he was Britain's first superstar footballer in the sense that um he the you know, with the trappings, the money and the attention that, that came with it. And at first, yeah, he was the first hundred grand a year player, wasn't he? But exactly. everywhere you looked I mean, he had he had something going on the Edwardia boutique in uh, in Manchester, where people would just rock up there to see if he was in, and he advertised everything. Uh, she had his own shoes and boots. Uh, the one that surprised me actually was the the travel agents association saying they got a twenty percent upswing in bookings to anywhere that yeah. he was pictured. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think he's the original um, influencer. Whatever mm. he lent his name to, or wherever he went, became the place to be. Whether it was nightclubs in Manchester or you know tramp discotheque in in London, though I'm sure that was doing well anyway. Oh, he um, had Slack Alice as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. His nightclub. You know, he um, he. He, he he yeah he he was an influencer in a pre-digital age but what's what's interesting is that that as well as his goals from the early 70s which are still available on youtube there's also his appearance on uh, on on um this is your life uh, which is a very obviously very popular show back in the 70s but also there's a documentary made about him by Michael Parkinson. He later appeared on Parkinson's show, where even by 1970, you can see that Best is becoming very remote and distant. And even as a, what was he, 27, 28 year old, mm. he's already thinking this is not going to last forever. And he's already thinking, as he says, that football is quite a sad game because by the time you get to 30, particularly, you know, in those days, you're, you're more or less finished. And you can see that kind of sense of melancholy, which Parkinson always said nibbled away at, at best soul. Um, and when I met him, he was he was very, very um, he was very introspective. He, he, he was very kind of kind of in some ways maudlin, I'd say, about how things had gone. He knew that things shouldn't have ended the way that they did in terms of him becoming increasingly dependent on alcohol. You but can as well, by the way, go back. You talked about the, the Parkinson interview to that yeah. 1971 film, Footballers Never Before, uh, Homeworth Courtard, who got that permission to have eight cameras just yeah. follow best for around for 90 minutes. Yeah. I mean, that is a pure... I mean, it's almost like watching a piece of 1960s psychedelia, watching that. Yes, it is. I mean, it is. And and, and I think what becomes very clear of it, even though Best is, is by the early 70s not quite what he was, his 
staggering balance. Um, you know, 70s football hasn't always aged that well, but George Best still appears to float over these pitches, these often cabbage patch pitches, um, like he's, he's, he's on a never, another, another plane. And I think that that, uh, that incredible film that, uh, kind of um, encapsulates that, definitely. And if you look, it, it doesn't matter at what stage of his career he was at, just his name was enough to add thousands to Gates, which is why chairman all over the place wanted him. And there was that bizarre offer from the Norwegian team owner who offered him a selection of hand-picked girls if he would like to sign for us. <laughs> yeah. That's right. George actually turned that down. He said I must have been very, very sober uh, that day. Um, but yeah. Oh, so um, sobriety. That was yeah. another thing. What was his famous quote? I gave up booze in 1969. It was the most boring 20 minutes of my life. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, I, I said to him about that. And because because that was what his kind of his his standard quotes that he'd roll out for his for his audiences because he was a very very good very accomplished you know after dinner speaker and I said to him do you, do you ever think, think that you should go a bit deeper a bit more a bit more um, you know focus on something a different area and he said well that's what the audience want to hear about they want to hear about my drinking they want to hear about booze and as he's you know as he said in his oh. unreconstructed my well booze and birds. Well, how many times have you heard the story about the... And, and it's it takes on different forms. Um, mm. You know, the, the butler going into the hotel room with Mary Stavin lying there on the bed and a case full of money on the bed. Where did it all go wrong, George? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, she claims that's a, it's a flight of best's fancy. Yeah. Um, but whether it is or whether it isn't, he, he, he enjoyed, you know, telling, telling the story. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, it kind of summed up best that he'd never, he he could never quite get beyond those stories because he he like many footballers, he struggled um, post football to to find his niche, to find his mark. Although he mm. did have a you know a successful um, the best career. of Marsh thing. That's right, with Rodney Marsh, and he was on Sky for years and everything like that. But he never quite moved on, I don't think, from being from being a footballer. And I think I think I think he missed it. I think he missed so it. Some believed his football abilities meant that he literally had other unearthly powers. And one woman wrote actually begging him to visit a terminally ill son to cure him, to lay his hands on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, his, his, um, his agent, Ken Stanley, said that at first, you know, the, 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 let, the fan letters were purely fan letters and, you know, offers to go out from, from various women and that kind of thing. But later they took on a darker tone, um, you know, begging him for money. Um, as you say, offer you know, asking if he could cure their their sick their sick children, and um, I think I think it, it it kind of got to best. I think he realised that the fame wasn't wasn't really wasn't really his thing. wasn't had, had ceased to become fun um, a, a while back. And Ken Stanley, in the end, you know, either hid many of the letters from Best or on a couple of occasions had to had to call the police because they were getting to quite alarming alarming levels and took alarming tones. Many momentous moments in the in the seventies terms of football but one which literally uh, stopped the city in his tracks was Bill Shankly's resignation uh, certainly the, one of the biggest shocks of the opening years it came after that 
uh, Newcastle United victory in the uh, 74 Cup final. And he'd done this thing before where he teased, I'm going to retire, I'm going to retire, I'm going to retire. But when it actually happened, and I was talking to Brian Barwick, who's who's a lifelong Liverpool fan who was just getting into the, or beginning to start to get interested in getting into the industry. And he said, I remember... Yeah, at the time he said, I was working, uh, he said, filling up crates with bottles of lemonade. He said, and when the news came out, we just stopped, looked at each other. He said, I had to take a half a day. I had to go home. I couldn't concentrate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the shock, the shockwaves went went well beyond Anfield. I mean, as you said, he'd, he'd said to the directors several times that he, he was ready to retire. He was, he was early 60s. Um, by 74 and he'd always you know gone gone back on that but there were there were lots of there were lots of stories about why he might have done it his wife um Nessie hadn't been hadn't been well I think she'd been Mm. badgering him to retire um interestingly I um heard it heard an interesting take which I'd not heard before so um Admiral were very very big in the 70s in terms of approaching clubs to modernise their to modernise their kits, and I interviewed Bert Patrick, who was the um, chief executive at Admiral, and he approached Liverpool, um, and uh, with with some ideas. And Steve Highway modelled the, the kit in in the in the in the changing room. Bill Shankly walked in and said, "This is near a bloody circus, Stevie," in a, in a in a far deeper voice than, than that, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, you know, if the boys want the bloody thing, they can they can have it. So he they Shankly signed on the dotted line with with Bert Patrick, and then Bert Patrick later got called into John Smith's office, who became Liverpool chairman, and he said, you know, this this contract is is null and void. We're we're not doing it. And and Bert Patrick said that Bill Shankly, this was in the months before the cup final, was always you know, upset by the fact that directors seem to want to take more and more of an active role in, um, you know, in, in, in what was happening. So that's that's another interesting take. But, you know, whatever the reason that Shankly quit, um, he regretted it very, very quickly. Bill Shankly, um, sorry, Bill, Bob Paisley took over and did a, did a very good job. But the story goes that within a, a month or so, he he went to John Smith and asked for his asked for his his job back. Job back, mm-hmm. yeah, which 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 was never going to happen given um, the fact that they spent so long persuading him, just trying to persuade him to stay. It ended up as well, which must have been very sad mm. for all to see. Was he would still come to Melwood? He was yeah. he would obviously still be going to the games at Anfield, but and he would be in the changing rooms and he would be at Melwood. And of course the players didn't know initially how to react if he came over and began communication or started to talk to them. And it began to irk Bob Paisley a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the the, the players still called Shankly boss. Mm-hmm. Um, which left Bob Paisley in a very, very difficult situation. So Paisley went to John Smith, the Liverpool chairman, and they decided that um, Paisley needed to tell Shankly basically to, you know, to stay away, which which ups, upset Shankly um, a, a great deal. But I think it says a lot about Paisley's quiet, steely determination that he, he did it. Um, and you know, he ended up then going yeah. over the road, and literally, if you yeah. if you know the landscape of of where they were, Melwood and Belfield are very very close by to each other. Yeah, and he ended up going to work with the kids over at Everton. Everton. Yeah, helped Ron right. Yates out at Tranmere Rovers, yeah. 
And what must have really got under his skin was the fact that when he offered advice or spotted a player and told Liverpool, in one instance, Stevie Coppel, they decided they did, well, nothing, really. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, they 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 decided on not not to sign Koppel, and 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 I think what what hurt him is that when he when Liverpool did win the win the European Cup, he went to Rome where they where Liverpool played Borussia Mönchengladbach. Mm. He went to Rome not as a guest of Liverpool, but as a guest of Jeff Powell, the Daily Mail um, uh, writer, um, and yeah, it it, it hurt hurt Shankly terribly I mean it's interesting because he was never <clears throat> he, he'd always said he, he'd never wanted to be a director and yet I think he saw the fact that at Manchester United Manchester United had made Matt Busby a director which had caused a lot of problems there because you know Busby was always in the background which made life difficult for for Frank O'Farrell um, and Wilf McGuinness who, who immediately su- succeeded him so he was in a in a difficult situation, um, but Shankly also became a regular on the you know on the chat show circuit. Um, yeah, he did a show on Radio City for a, a yeah. while. Mm. Yeah, I think just to remind people that he was he was still there, and he was mm. always he, he was always a uh, you know a, an amazing amazing orator. I mean, there's a great one at, at Everton where um, I think what a journalist said, "How are you feeling today, Bill?" And he said, uh, "I'm feeling great." And he says, and, and he said. Uh, some of the lines of, I think if I, I'd be very happy if I dropped dead right now. Yes, and, yes, you're right. Quizzical look, said, pardon? He said, well, there I would be lying in my coffin and everyone filing by would say, there's Bill, doesn't he look, doesn't he look well? <laughs> Which is, you know, classic, classic Shankly, Shankly oratory, I think. Probably the most, um, the most quotable uh, manager yeah. ever, ever in English football alongside Brian Clough. Yeah, he had a great sense of humour. There was talk about him working on his delivery. He was a big Jimmy Cagney and Jack Benny fan, and uh, Jack Jim's uh, Jamie Cagney, or Jimmy Cagney rather, in in particular. If you look back at some of the films and look at the way that he delivers dialogue, and then you look at some of the quotes of Shankly, you think, God, that is spot on. But yeah. I loved his thing, his dislike of anything blue. Emlyn Hughes thought about <laughs> buying a pale blue Hillman imp. And, he, and his, his reply was just, the blue stays at Goodison. Blue yeah. is bloody blue. But can you yeah. imagine, uh, and I can just can't imagine this situation, Larry Lloyd there at the time, uh, his fiance wanting to paint the Liverpool clubhouse blue. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And... Uh... Yeah, Shankly said, absolutely, absolutely not. Yeah, he said, as you said to Emily Hughes about his Hillman Imp, blue is blue is bloody blue. And yet, you know, you're not you're not having it. I mean, the, the one word that Liverpool players clung on to that Shankly said was the word sun. Um, yeah, yeah. In the sense that it was something quarried, something precious quarried out of the ground. And I think that Emily Hughes, who I interviewed, said that Shankly said it to show, A, that he was in charge, but also to show that he's... He's the kind of like the father figure, and that Liverpool players were were, were all his all his sons, um, and I don't think anyone found found life as kind of hollow as kind of unfulfilling in a sense as as, as Bill Shankly after after he finished after he finished at, at Liverpool. Um, uh, you you mentioned yeah. Kit and yeah. uh, Ambrell and and the the revolution the Kit revolution really did start. Uh, to gather momentum in that decade. It was originally Cook and Hearst, wasn't it? An underwear manufacturer who'd had this vision and stepped in after the 
That 66 World Cup when demand heavily outstripped the supply of England shirts. But it was interesting the way that they targeted the North and Northwest and not London. And they got in with Leeds for their away kit with Dom Revy there, the yellow and uh, with the blue and white tram lines. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, um, Don Revy was always very, very um, commercially aware. I mean, one of the chapters that I, I talk about is is with Paul Trevelyan, the, the beaver who helped turn him into super leads. But um, with, with with regards to the Admiral kit, yeah. Um, Bert Patrick approached approached Don Revy uh, with a view to, to modernising the, the Leeds kit. And initially, Revy said, well, you're not going to touch the home kit, but you've got, got carte blanche to do what you want with the, with the away kit. Um, and yeah, you have the, the, the blue, the blue tram lines going, going up the arms, the, the more kind of butterfly collar approach, um, Mm. as, as well. And, and, um, and, and then subsequently, you know, they did, uh, Admiral did change the, the Leeds home kit as, as well. Um, but this is kind of like their, their Baroque period, if you like, of, of tram lines and yokes (laughs) and, um, the, the, the egg, the egg timer look on the, on the kind of like the, the Wales um, kit and, and that famous um, Coventry City, um, well, home kit, but oh, also... the brown the, kit. The chocolate brown kit, yeah. yeah. Which you, we, we can't use. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. We haven't got a watershed here. How did Jimmy Hill describe it? Yes, it often describes the dog shit kit. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Brilliant, but, brilliant. But what's interesting is, of course, that, you know, everyone says, why brown? Why brown? But actually, if you look back at old family photos, either... Well, brown was a big colour. ...parents then. or your grandparents, brown and burnt orange were, were the colour. And that's why the, the front cover of Get It On is um is um you know in in those colors because it it, it was the, the color of the time in america they called it earth toning we never called it quite uh, quite that over, yeah it was over all abigail's party that <laughs> that's right well jimmy hill was of the opinion that any publicity was good publicity i don't think it was seen that way by the players at the time and yet if you have an original um chocolate brown coventry kit now worth, um, worth thousands probably eBay. yeah worth <laughs> thousands absolutely but, but yeah. revy let's not forget as well was involved in england's new kit as well for the opening game of the european championships in uh, 74 the qualifiers he had a great idea that night to get the crowd singing as well didn't he he handed out song sheets for everybody in the ground to sing Land of Hope and Glory. That's right. That's right. I mean, I've, I've never quite found this out. I th- I, they must have sung the national anthem as well. Because I think all Wembley occasions, they have to, you have to play the national anthem, don't you? Mm. Um, but I, so I think this is, might have been on top or um, as well as the, as well as the national anthem. But it, as well as, as heralding, a, you know, a new era for England, England won 3-0, although they struggled against a very, very good Czechoslovakia team that went on, of course, to, to win the 76 European Championships. It, it, uh, they, they, were, they unearthed, or oh, sorry, unveiled their new um, Admiral kit that night with the, with the red and blue tram lines going down, going down the arms. And there was, um, you know, some, some players accepted it. Others weren't so happy. Frank, Frank Worthington was, was oh. concerned about the state of his nipples. Yeah. Um, Chafing. <laughs> Chafing on, on this, um, on as Colin Bell called it, this cardboard feeling kit. Emlyn Hughes didn't think it was sufficiently patriotic enough 
in the sense that, you know, to him, red and blue were more Union Jack than mm. um, than than England. Um, so I wouldn't say that it was universally um, popular. Um, it wasn't until day. later on when we look back at those uh, those kits. Yeah. But the other the other key moment in terms of Admiral and uh, kits was the FA Cup final with them getting told to remove the logo from the front of the shirt or we can't show the cup final. So they did and put yeah. it on the back. Yeah, that's right. So Manchester United played Southampton in the in a 76 cup final, both of whom were sponsored by by Admiral. And um, yeah, Bert Patrick got a phone call from the BBC, BBC sorry, saying saying that, uh, you know, you, you, you can't do this. This is blatant product placement. Um, but by actually swapping the, you know, the labels and, and the logos around, when, when the players fanned out as they emerged from the tunnel, the cameras actually captured them perfectly anyway. So mm. as Bert Patrick said, it was a fantastic day for, for Admiral. And, you know, Admiral kit sales surged. And you had some really iconic kits came from that. Um, you know, you've got the Crystal Palace um, sash. You've got the, the retina scarring <laughs> Luton Town kit from the 70s as well, which is still very popular amongst their, their supporters um, today. Um, you have the, you know, the Tottenham kit from the late 70s with the... Um, with the chevrons down the, down the sleeve. So, Lindsay, Lindsay Yeah, I'm Jelly, not a fan of that, by the way. No, no. <laughs> Lindsay, Lindsay Jelly, who was the Admiral designer, um, I interviewed her, and what, what they said is they wanted to um, kind of put a new spin on traditional kits. And, yeah, it, it, it didn't go down well, and it was even discussed in Parliament with, with the view that Admiral were ripping off um, uh, you know, um, punters in the sense that you know kids would nag their parents for these replica kits, and it was it was very expensive. So the you know the same arguments you hear now, you know, began in by, by the late seventies with the with these admiral kits. Lastly, we, we can't talk about the seventies without mentioning the issue of hooliganism, which was an epidemic which, I mean, nobody really got a handle on government politicians, literally clueless in how to deal with it. Although, yeah, they did recommend, this was in the 70s quite early on, more seating in grounds. But these were the days, yeah, those football special trains, the coaches doing pub stops before you'd get to grounds. Uh, and, you know, you would watch on the television. I mean, I grew up, grew up in the in the 70s. You, you'd watch pictures of city centres being boarded up when fans, particularly Chelsea, Manchester United, Leeds rolled into town. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I never wanted the, the book to be um, a homage to the 70s. I always wanted to show the darker side of it and, and hooliganism is 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 uh, very very uh, prevalent throughout the 70s yeah i mean towns and cities often were, were, were like war zones particularly when um, manchester united came into town um i mean as you say no one seemed to really know a what the causes were and b what what to do what to do about it so um the the, the tabloids in, in an attempt to kind of shame the hooligans set up hooligan leagues in, in, in there in terms of, you know, who got most arrests. But rather Which than spurred shaming, them on. <laughs> yeah, rather than shaming the headlines, it was like a badge of honour um, um, for them. And, you know, you have, you, have, you have Manchester United who were followed, um, you know, then and now in, in large numbers. And, and for a season, Manchester United very famously were, were in Division 2. 
and they essentially annexed grounds. But they did so much damage to those grounds that by the end of it, Bristol Rovers actually um, added a 15p charge to the tickets because that <laughs> that would pay for the damage that was done by by Manchester United. I remember that they came down yeah. to. They came to play Bristol Rovers, if I am not mistaken, on a good Friday afternoon, uh, actually. And of course, as you say, took over the in, entire place. There wasn't much good about it for the, lo for, for the local, for Bristol locals. Sorry, I, I butted in on what did you say? I was going to say, you do have the iconic photograph of the Manchester United fan, Peter Brooks, Peter Brooks. with the yeah. dart through his nose after yeah. attending the Liverpool-Manchester United game in 78, yeah. which literally went, although they didn't know it then, viral. It went all over the world, didn't it? And he appeared yeah. on Radio 4. He ended, up, he ended up getting offers of marriage. I can't quite understand where that came from. Um, no. And people just, people were sending him money in the post. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He was he was a you know a local celebrity for quite a while. And I talked to Peter for the book, and he, he still gets get his interviewed about it about it now. But you know, as he says, it, it's the the game. It was Liverpool Manchester United at Anfield. With the cages had gone up at Anfield the in the summer before because of, of crowd trouble. Every, you know, everywhere. And as Peter Brooks said, you know, before the game, the, the, as he said, the normal happened. They were walking down the down the street getting you know dogs abuse off locals they got in and suddenly you get stones coins stuff being, being chucked over and as he said it was it was toing and froing and then suddenly he gets it gets his knocked on on the on the nose by 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 something he presumes it's a coin but he suddenly realized his his vision is obscured because there's a you know a, a dart um that's embedded itself in his in his nose um and it is it is it is a shocking image i mean he said he got taken into an ambulance and um he was sat next to a, a liverpool fan who got a, you know was covered in blood because a house brick had been thrown at him and he said he was in a far worse state than me but his is the is the image that that kind of made the the dailies the next day and went abroad because i think that people thought it that the dart was it was in his eye but you know the the the, the heading in in le keep is, is in the French someone along the lines mm. of how, you know how has English football football come to this, um, and you know it it's the the problem certainly does not get um, cured or solved in the seventies. It, it worsened as as we know to tr with tragic consequences in in the in the eighties. Yeah, um, I mean the, the the decade was littered, especially early on with. Clubs being banned from playing at home. United got a two-game ban yeah. from at home at the start of the 71-2 season. And then yeah. some brain-dead moron insisted they played one of the games at Anfield. I mean, a Manchester United home game at Anfield. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's quite remarkable. I mean, Tottenham at, uh, at Feyenoord, big trouble there. United at San Etienne as well, um, where they ended up playing at Home Park, I think, after that. But they did yeah. they did make an attempt, didn't they? They banned alcohol on coaches. There were no pub stops, no arriving at grounds more than an hour before um, kickoff. And then we had the introduction of the all-ticket game. So anywhere with uh, Manu and Chelsea, it was all ticket. Yeah. And the football specials stopped in the end. 
Um, because I think that you know one of the reasons that hooliganism was so prevalent was um, the fact that train fares had been had been so cheap on these mm. on these football specials, so they stop. And I think also some supermarkets started to realise that um, you know selling cheap booze in bulk was also you know manna for he- from heaven for for many hooligans as well. So there were some some you know there were some um, attempts to clamp down on on hooliganism but it's it it it, they were they were largely you know unsuccessful and and you have the first group really of hooligans hooligans to revel in their notoriety of course at at Millwall because Panorama you know broadcast um uh um um, an an insight into um the, the you know the Millwall hooligans um Harry the dog and um Billy Plummer wasn't it yeah, Billy Billy Plummer, who I spoke to, um, and Bobby the Wolf, and this kind of thing, and you know they sound like they're quite cartoonish, and when you watch it now, you think, oh, it's 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 almost it, it has the it has the feel of kind of like a Clockwork Orange meets one of those kind of public information films from the seventies, yeah, where they tell kids to mm. stay away from railways. It's it's kind of otherworldly, and yeah, the the clobber they're wearing makes them look almost cartoonish but you know when when bobby the wolf you know says I'll, I'll stick a stick a pint glass in some northerner's head if they spit all over me you know these guys are are not joking they are they're reveling in their notoriety this came on by the way after are you being served so you had yeah. uh, you know you had mr humphreys <laughs> yeah oh yeah there's none of that in in, in a panorama <laughs> about the hooligans no well, he, Harry the dog's quote, wasn't it? Famous quote, no, was uh, a good day. It's a good game of football, a good punch up and a good piss up. Yeah, that's all about Millwall. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it drove um, Gordon Jago, who was the Millwall manager, um, crazy because he's, he's, he's filmed on this and he, he actually talks to the hooligans because Millwall had various open days where they tried to reach out to the local community. They had Sunday markets outside the ground. And, you know, he says to a lot of the hooligans, you know, you you guys, what you're doing is you're preventing away teams coming here. You're depriving us of, of, of money, of income, which means that we can't invest in, in better players. So Jago realised that, um, you know, hooliganism was, was damaging the club as much as anything. It looked like a, a snapshot of inner city life, actually, as well. You know, you, you have pictures of Billy Plummer at home with his dear old mum, love me mum, mum cooking yeah. him, you know, his lunch or his breakfast, getting him ready for work, you know, um, and everything was geared up towards uh, the weekend. Um, I mean, he said in that film, I've got ambitions, I don't know what they are, but as long as I've got enough money to get a Millwall, that will do me. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, and and I think in in the documentary and in my interview with Billy Plummer, he he uh, he, he comes the, the closest of any hooligan of the time, if you like, to actually think you know investigating or talking about the reasons behind it. You know, his uh, his his I think his dad was was off the scene. I think his stepdad was off the scene as well. There's no male role model. Um, you, you know, he, he dropped out of school early. Um, you've got the whole backdrop of kind of urban urban decay there as well. Um, a lack of male a lack of male role models. There's territorialism, um, and 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 the fact that he's just swept along 
by by you know the violence and 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 as as the documentary shows you've got a hierarchy of hooligans from the more seasoned ones like Harry the dog to the kids who you know will follow in their kind of elders footsteps so it, it is enlightening and I, I, I felt sad you know talking talking to Billy Plummer about about it because he said you know that the documentary made us a lot of us look like knuckle scrapers Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know they didn't they didn't do themselves a lot of favors obviously in the in the documentary to be fair so that decade the the 1970s a lot of people look back on it and you see a lot of groups and forums and 70s pages on facebook that have got you know thousands and thousands of, of followers all proclaim yeah it was the greatest decade for football it <sighs> It would be hard to argue for that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because as yeah. for, for whatever good there was in there, yeah, the stadiums were often run down. The the violence thing was a, was a big, big thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember the first game I ever went to was at uh, Ashton Gate when see Bristol City against Sunderland. Um, and I remember, remember the goals being scored. But the, the other thing that I remember was... Hey, learning a whole new set of swear words, right? Yeah. And uh, the rampage across the park of Ashton Park afterwards by the two sets of supporters desperate to get at each other. And I was thinking, I'm like, what's going on? You know, you're, you're like six, you know, and you're scared to death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's uh, a great deal of menace surrounding football in, in the 70s. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that the, the small band of uh, um, uh, black footballers in, in England was, mm. you know, was subject to terrible abuse. There's, there's the hooliganism, as you say, the stadia. Although you look back now and it looks iconic, were, were, were uncomfortable. And just like the country itself, where you've got violence in, in Northern Ireland, you've got strikes, you've got three-day weeks... Um, you've got um, it, it, there's there's a menacing there's a menacing atmosphere to to football in 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 that era. However, there is also the kind of the kind of more cutting edge side to it and the more uplifting side because football could uplift and and could unify people in in the sense that the FA Cup in that era was uh, probably the greatest, had, wasn't yeah, it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you had two sides from the second division. Um, Southampton and Sunderland winning the FA Cup. You know, you have you have you know Ipswich winning it uh, as as well, who were in the first division. But you have you know Forest and you have Liverpool winning the European Cup. And I'm looking at uh, kind of as the era of the provincial club, in the sense that um, you know Derby County and Nottingham Forest, thanks to Brian Clough and Peter Taylor, had um, you know their 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 moment in the sun, if you like, and that was their that was their glorious period. Um, and so and, and you have the you know the, the whole advent and the impact of, of color TV raising football to, to a higher profile so I look I see the 70s as being um, uh, a, a cutting edge decade in, in many ways in the sense that much of what we now take as parcel and parcel part and parcel of the game came in 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 the 70s you have you know foreign players starting to come in at the end with Tyson and Muir and at, at Ipswich and you know Villa and um, uh, Ardiles and Tarantini the Argentinians at, at, at Birmingham and, and the other two at, at Tottenham so I think much of what we take for granted now with, with TV pundits 
you know, came in in the 70s and the whole thing about football being, uh, you know, a game for personalities. You have managers and, and players being elevated to that level. But it's on, it is true. There was a feeling and an air of menace um, at matches. And I think that that is, is kind of symptomatic of the 70s themselves. And that is it. My thanks to John Sperling and Ellie Watson earlier on, of course, who joined us to talk about that exhibition at the Design Museum, Designing the Beautiful Game, which starts on April the 6th and is well worth a visit. Now, don't forget to join us for the next edition, which is out within the next week or so. Anthony Potts will join me talking about, uh, amongst other things, the great friendship that he had with Paul Gascoigne, the two of them were in rehab together, both uh, recovering from very serious knee injuries. And don't forget, too, you can revisit the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com where you will find all three years' worth of original podcasts to listen back to. They are also available, of course, across every main streaming platform. But that's it from me. Hope you've enjoyed the programme today. From me, Tim Capel, till next time. Bye-bye for now.